And uh, as we consider this morning the wonder of the incarnation, um, this uh, today and, and next week, uh, we will be looking at the story of Christmas, at the truths about Christmas through the lens of the book of Romans. We've been in the book of Romans this fall, and uh, I have been intrigued by uh, considering to what extent, if and to what extent, in this book that is so big on justification by faith alone, how would this book speak about the birth of Jesus? Is there anything in the book of Romans that would speak about the birth of Jesus? And the answer is, sure enough, there is. Um, we're going to see it this morning in, jo- in uh, Romans chapter 1. Uh, the very first few words of the book of Romans will speak to us about the incarnation of Jesus. But before we turn there, you, let me tell you about a particular influential man who has influenced uh, secular society. A man by the name of John Hick. He's a religious pluralist. What that means is religious pluralists believe that there's many ways to God, that every religion will eventually find their way to God. It doesn't matter which of the religious paths you take, you eventually will get to the mountain. That's what religious pluralism in a nutshell seeks to convince people of. He wrote, this man, John Hick, wrote a book called The Metaphor of God Incarnate. An intriguing title. Hick was very happy to embrace the incarnation of God as an idea. Underscore, as an idea. He found it helpful to be a concept. Uh, he helped as a helpful, he helped, found it as a helpful concept that describes God's nearness to man. But he could not accept it as a historical reality. He could only embrace it as an idea, as an image, as a metaphor. Why was he unwilling to accept it as a historical fact and yet embrace it as a metaphor, as an idea? Well, he said, if, if the incarnation was history, then it would pave the way for the understanding why Christianity is the only way to God. And he could not accept that. So he's, he's open to the idea that this, this, this concept of God incarnate is a wonderful idea, a wonderful picture that shows closeness. But it's not historical, because if it was, then this sets up the way, the foundation for claiming that there is no other way. Why? Because only the God of Christianity would claim that he actually became incarnate. I've entitled the message this morning, The Wonder of the Incarnation. And as we will look at, at the beginning of the book of Romans, we're going back to the very beginning to see how the book of Romans actually paves the way to understand something crucial, some important clues about the gospel that this book unfolds for us. How does the book of Romans speak about the incarnation of Jesus? There are actually four passages in the whole book that speak about the incarnation of Jesus. Chapter 1, 
chapter 8, chapter 9, and then chapter 15. And this morning we are only looking uh, in detail at chapter 1. And uh, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Romans 1. We'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 6. Even though my message this morning will be focusing on verses 2, 3, and 4. But let's read Romans 1, 1 through 6, and see how the Apostle Paul begins speaking about Jesus. Here's God's word. Paul, a servant in Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me in praying and asking God to bless his word, the preaching of it, and our hearing. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you have revealed to us your plan of salvation through your son Jesus. Thank you for revealing this word to us. We ask that as we hear it, that you would help us, assist us by your spirit. I ask that you would help me to proclaim it with clarity and the conviction that comes from your spirit for the glory of Christ, not only in our own hearts here, but also among the earth. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You might be surprised to realize that the book of Romans uh, would give us, from the very first few verses of this book, important clues about the birth of Jesus. In these introductory verses, Paul first wants to speak about himself because he's writing to a church he has never visited. He's writing to them because he's about to visit them. And he's about to ask them to support him financially on the trip that he's going to Spain and wants their assistance on this journey. So in some way, the book of Romans is a missionary letter, uh, quite a different missionary letter uh, than any other letter you've ever read. But as soon as Paul speaks about himself, why he's called, to what he's called, he, he tells us he's called to be serving or set aside for the gospel of God. He says that in verse 1. This is a purpose of his calling as an apostle. It was for the per gospel of God. And then he begins describing this gospel, speaking to us about it. And in verses 2 to 4, Paul describes what this gospel is about. In a, in a, in a short answer, is it's concerning his son. That's what we see in verse 3. And then the first thing Paul says about Jesus is that he was a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now, why would that be an important detail? When you think about presenting the gospel about Jesus, I mean, how often do you say he was a descendant of David according to the flesh? Does that ever make it into your gospel presentation? Reality is probably not. It's amazing when we talk about... And you, those of you who have become members, you know that in our membership process, we ask people to tell us what is the gospel, 
to give us a short summary of how they understand the gospel. And oftentimes people actually leave out, they get to Jesus and they talk about his death. But they leave out the resurrection. And what almost always is left out is that he was born a human. We just assume God sent his son. But here Paul doesn't assume that reality. He actually fleshes it out and he speaks the first description about Jesus is that he is God's son descended from David according to the flesh. We don't have a gospel message without a clear understanding and belief in the physical incarnation of the Son of God. So these very few early introductory verses of this amazing book of Romans actually want to convince us that the incarnation of God's Son is an important part of the gospel message. The incarnation of God's Son is an important part of the gospel message. That's what I hope these verses will convince all of us this morning. And the question is how? How is the incarnation of Jesus an important part of the gospel message? Why is it important? Three parts, three reasons that we see. Each of them are in verse, one is in verse 2, the second in verse 3, the third is in verse 4. Why the incarnation of God's Son is an important part of the gospel message. And I hope to convince you that when you have opportunities moving forward to share the gospel with others, that you will not gloss over this little detail. That Jesus is God's Son who became human, who took on human flesh. Why is that important? Point number one. The incarnation fulfills Old Testament gospel promises. The incarnation fulfills Old Testament gospel promises. We see this in verse 2. After Paul introduces the gospel of God in verse 1, he then speaks about this gospel as being revealed in the Old Testament. Look at verse 2. The gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. When Paul speaks about the gospel, he begins with the incarnation of Jesus as fulfillment of the Old Testament gospel promises. Now, as one Bible teacher put it beautifully, Paul shows here his jealousy for the unity and the continuity of the gospel with the Old Testament. Sometimes we think that the gospel only begins in the New Testament. Sometimes we think that the, that the gospel is the, this new revelation that, that God completely just pulls out of the hat and we just need to focus on what's in the New Testament. But here Paul says actually that the gospel of God is not a novelty that is only introduced in the New Testament. God promised it beforehand through his prophets in the Old Testament scriptures. We might say it this way. In the Old Testament, we see the gospel promised. In the New Testament, we see the gospel fulfilled. The gospel promised in the Old Testament, the gospel fulfilled in the New Testament. This is why in the Old Testament times, when believers heard, when God's people heard what God was planning to do, 
Even if the details were not all fleshed out, but there's a hint, there's a clue. When the Old Testament people hear what God was promising to do, if they believed that, they would be his people, even if Jesus hasn't yet come to fully yet fulfill it. Because the gospel was promised in the Old Testament. And those who heard it in those promised forms, even though it was in a, perhaps in an incomplete way, but there was enough clue of what God was promising to do. Those who believed it, they were God's people. Those who didn't were not, even though they had the external elements of belonging to the people of Israel. Well, friends, the point that Paul is making in, these, in this very first part of defining the gospel of God is that it concerns his son and this news about his son was foretold, promised centuries before Jesus came. And now God is fulfilling or has fulfilled those promises. Friends, this is why we, we treasure not just the New Testament but also the Old Testament. This is why when we come to the uh, Christmas Eve service this coming weekend, uh, we will be not only singing the carols, but we'll be reading the promises of the gospel about the Son of Jesus. Promises from the Old Testament. Several Old Testament prophecies about the explicit coming of the Son of God. This is why when we read the Old Testament, we always want to read it not only to understand what it meant to the original audience in the Old Testament times, but why and how it's pointing forward to Jesus. We want to equip one another to read the Old Testament with this lens of anticipating, seeing where Jesus is promised, where he's anticipated, and we read the New Testament looking backwards at how Jesus has fulfilled those Old Testament promises. This is why we love partnering with a ministry like Simeon Trust who equips pastors and, and Bible teachers to interpret God's word not only in the original, with the original intent, but also how that original intent points to Jesus, predicts the coming of Jesus, fulfills when it's being fulfilled, or how it's being applied in light of Jesus. Because we want to read the entire Bible through this Christological through this lens of how it's pointing forward to Jesus. Paul would have it no other way. The gospel of God concerning his son promised in the Old Testament. This is the wonder of the incarnation. The first wonder that it fulfills Old Testament gospel promises. The second wonder of the incarnation is that the incarnation brings God's son into David's royal line. The incarnation brings God's son into David's royal line. Look at verse 3. Concerning his son who descended from David according to the flesh. There's some puzzling phrases here and one of them is this notion of according to the flesh. When you and I talk about our birth, our birthday, we don't say, well, I was born according to the flesh. 
I mean, that would just be, that would be weird to just have to make that qualification. Let me talk to you about the day when I was born according to the flesh. And yet this is what Paul is describing and saying about Jesus' birth. Why would he have to put that qualification in there? Because Jesus' existence is not only according to the flesh. Actually, in making this claim, this qualifying weird phrase, according to the flesh, assumes, oh, the one we're about to talk about, about his birth, has existed or it has an existence apart from his existence according to the flesh. And that's why Paul actually speaks of, of him, he says, concerning his son, the son of God. The fact that Paul must speak about the birth of Jesus as being according to flesh assumes that this is not the only form of his existence. So when Paul actually introduces Jesus as concerning his son, referring to God's son, this is a key indicator that Jesus, he existed with God prior to his birth. Now, some may not be convinced of that. As a matter of fact, there are some liberal scholars who would say that actually this phrase doesn't necessarily refer to Jesus' pre-existence. He's just uh, presented here as a son the same way that Paul will speak about us being sons of God in chapter 8. So some would say, no, this is not talking about Jesus' pre-existence. He's just talking about the status of sons. The problem is you get to read the, the other parts of Romans and uh, there it becomes a little more clear that the one who is the son of God here in chapter 1 is the son of God very differently than you and I are sons and daughters of God. In chapter 8, at the beginning of chapter 8, in verse 3, I'm just going to read it. Um, Paul says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the in, he condemned sin in the flesh god sent his son to take on the likeness of human flesh the son existed before the sending and if that's not a clear evidence we go to the beginning of chapter 9 where Paul brings up the, 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 the birth of Jesus again. And in chapter 9, verse 5, Paul describes the advantage of the Jewish race. There are some advantages, as Paul has said earlier in other parts of Romans. And he says in chapter 9, verse 5, to them, to the Jews, belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. There's just no way to try to work around the idea that the Son is not referring to the eternal Son of God. When now in chapter 9, it says actually this Christ who's born of the Jewish family is actually God over all. He's eternal. He existed prior to his incarnation. As one Bible teacher put it beautifully, Jesus is here identified by that title, Son, which expresses 
his eternal relation to the Father. This is why the birth of Jesus is so unique. This is a wonder of the incarnation. Because the one born in a stable in Bethlehem is the divine, eternal Son of God. None of the other gods of other religions have a story of becoming incarnate, of taking on human flesh, and that to be a real story, not just an imaginary story. All idols are created, things of this creation, and they are elevated to the status of being a god. All idols strive to, to, to take on that status of, of God, of supreme God. And yet, the true God chose to do the very opposite, to enter into this creation and to become a human being, to be, to be a created body, to, to, to take on the human limitations, even though he is the true, eternal God. Our sinful nature craves and longs for the role and the authority of God in our lives. We want to be God in our lives. We want to be powerful to the, to the end degree. We are troubled when others encroach on our powers and our authority and our rights. But God's intent was to send his son to take our role of powerlessness, of human limits, of weakness, of suffering, and even death. You see how different God is to everything of this creation, to everything that, that human religion would try to promote? If God's son became man, and none other religion uh, has this belief as part of their belief system, this may help us understand why Christ claimed that he is the only way to the Father. Because he alone is the eternal God who would become human. This is why I hope you and I understand why we must be zealous with the gospel and cannot just keep it to ourselves as if it's just one option. Oh, friends, this is why, especially in a season like Christmas, we have opportunities to interact with people, to make Christ known. I hope it drives you and it inflames, rekindles your flame for evangelism. Oh, friends, if you're not a Christian and perhaps may not be convinced of why the significance of Christmas for Christians is such a big deal, that it's not about the, the cultural dimensions of what we celebrate. It's not about the gifts. It's not even about the gatherings, as good as that is. It's about Jesus. It's about the eternal Son of God becoming man. Oh, friends, the reason why we make a big deal about this Jesus and about his birth is because the eternal divine Son of God would become human by taking on human flesh and be born in a human race. But it doesn't stop there. When, when the eternal Son of God entered the human race, he entered a particular race or ethnicity. He entered the ethnicity of the Jewish people. And not just any of the Jewish people, a particular tribe, the tribe of, 
of Judah, and not any particular house in Judah, but the house of David. Why would that be a big deal? Because the house of David was the royal line. Look at verse 3. Concerning his son, who descended from David according to the flesh. The line of David in this passage may not tell us much. We may not understand why this is a big deal. But if you've read the Old Testament and you understand what God had promised David, David is the Davidic king. He is the, the king with whom God has made a covenant. One of the Old Testament prophecies and promises that God made was there was a promise made to David. And the promise was that God would establish an eternal kingdom by placing someone on his throne whose kingdom would be established forever. And I'm going to take you to two passages. The first one was the one that was already read by our brother Andy in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. I'm not going to read that passage again, but just listen to some of the phrases from that text. The Lord says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. I will be a father to him, and he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, in the initial prophetic word, this word had an initial fulfillment in King Solomon. Because the prophecy also speaks about the building of a house. And it was Solomon who would be the one who would build the house for the Lord. But if we read the, the rest of the Old Testament, we find out quickly how the promises to David fell short of being fulfilled in Solomon. In, in the second half of Solomon's life, his heart turned after foreign gods. After Solomon's death, the kingdom over the people of God split in half. The northern kingdom, Israel, completely rejected the house of David. It's as if they completely put aside the promises God made to David. As if ten tribes of Israel would say, we, have, we want to have nothing to do with God's promises to establish his kingdom forever. That's, in essence, what the northern tribes, ten of the twelve tribes, did. The only two tribes left were the tribes of Judah. And even them, if we keep up with the history of the Old Testament, we find out that they also were unfaithful to the Lord. They didn't believe God's word that God would establish a kingdom forever. They tried to do it their own way, making alliances in their own power with foreign nations in order to provide their security. And to one of those kings, King Ahaz, God sends his prophet Isaiah and tells him, don't be afraid of the enemies that are coming against you. I will protect you. Ask for a sign from the Lord. And Ahaz says, oh, I, I don't need to test the Lord. I don't need to ask for a sign. That's not a sign of humility. It was not a response of humility. It was a response of distrust that the Lord could actually establish his kingdom. So Isaiah, frustrated, says, well, listen, is it not enough that you are 
troubling me, you're also troubling the Lord. Because the Lord himself will give you a sign. The, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And Matthew tells us, in the virgin birth of Mary, God fulfilled the promise of the Old Testament. God will build his kingdom. And it's not going to be in your ways. God is, it knows how to build it. Israel, even, even the southern kingdoms of, uh, kingdom of Judah, they still, even though they held on to the house of David, they, re, they were unfaithful to the Lord. Time and time again, we see that the Old Testament kings that God has promised would fall short of being the fulfillment of what God has said he would do. By the time we get to the first century, who's on the throne in Israel? King Herod, an, an Edomite. He had no business, no connection to the house of David. As a matter of fact, by the time we get to the, the first century, the line of Davidic kings has been broken. There's no other Davidic king on the throne. And it has been so for a while. So when Paul begins describing the birth of Jesus, and he says, the gospel of God concerning his son, as he has foreshadowed, or as he foretold in, through his prophets in the Old Testament scriptures, and then the very first thing he says about Jesus <laughs> is that he was descended from David according to flesh. I mean, you're like, whoa, all that we thought was dead, gone, hopeless, humanly speaking, is now revived. God was fulfilling the requirement he made himself. The requirement he decreed about a future king over his people who would be coming through the line of David. God promised to establish an eternal kingdom and that promise was not lost when the Old Testament kings kept falling short of what God had promised. Let me take you to another Old Testament passage. Just an example. And there are a few other examples. We're not going to go through all of them. Jeremiah 23, verses 4 and 5. God says to Jeremiah, and he's speaking at a time when the Israelites were already taken into exile. Even the southern kingdom was taken. I will set shepherds over them, says God. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Just imagine, here's God saying, I will provide shepherds. This is why the work of pastors is so important. God says in the Old Testament that God's people need shepherds. But then in verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Not only will God raise up shepherds who would care for God's people, but God promised to raise one particular shepherd who would be out of the line of David. And he will be a shepherd king who would reign wisely over God's people. What's the point of all this? The wonder of the incarnation is that it brings the eternal son of God 
not only to belong to the human race, but actually to belong to the line of David so that he, the eternal son of God, would actually take the role that no other human king was able to fulfill. That he would establish God's throne over his people. That his care over his people will be eternally good, eternally wise, eternally loving. And his reign would endure forever. But make no mistake, this is not just a metaphorical idea. It's actual history. The Son of God would enter the human dynasty of King David. So that this newborn baby would reign as God has promised to David in the Old Testament. Well, friends, David's royal line would have as part of its portfolio of kings a king who would be like David because it came from his body and yet would be much greater than David because it came from God himself. So to claim that God himself would take on human flesh to reestablish the throne of David speaks volumes about the kind of restoration this kingdom needed. A kingdom who had no hope of being restored again when Herod was on the throne. All the prior human kings in the line of David, as best as they tried, all of them fell short. Starting with Solomon. And the fulfillment of this kingdom was going to take place by a human king coming from the line of David. But this fulfillment of this king was not merely a human king. He is God's very own son. God himself had to step into this picture. So the wonder of the incarnation, the second wonder, is that it brings God's son into David's royal line to revive, to restore the fulfillment, the hopes of the fulfillment of this eternal kingdom. And the final, inter, final wonder we see in this passage is that the incarnation prepares the way for victory over death. The incarnation prepares the way for victory over death. Look at verse 4. And he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. If verse 3 shows and proves the humanity of God's eternal Son, verse 4 shows what a human Messiah would be declared to be, and that is God's Son in power. Why is this particularly significant, and particularly for the Davidic king? Because with the coming of Jesus, God brought a new king on David's throne who would not fail even in death. In the coming of Jesus, God would bring a human king on David's throne who would not fail even in death. Quite the opposite. He would be elevated to the highest power and authority among all the Davidic kings. And this elevation to that high status, high power, would happen at the time of his resurrection from the dead. Now, this resurrection of Jesus and this elevation to that power is, is not the moment when Jesus becomes the Son of God. Some 
liberal scholars have interpreted this as a, they call it an adoptionist Christology. I know these are big words, but they would say Jesus was not born as the Son of God. He was lifted up to that status in the resurrection. My friends, that is not what this passage is about. Paul has already proven to us that the one born is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. What is going on here is that the human king who would sit on David's throne, who has experienced humiliation, weakness, suffering, and death, that his ministry does not end in the grave as, it's, as it ended for David. But actually, his ministry as king, raised in power after he was raised in, in humility and loneliness, his reason being raised from the dead is his ascension to the status of king in power. Because prior to this moment, he was king in weakness, king in suffering, king in humiliation. What good was it to have a king on a throne with no power? What, could, what good was it to have a king who would just end up in the grave? First century Jewish people were reminded daily of their lack of power. The powerlessness of a kingdom of God against the human for, Roman forces. Jesus' miracles on earth gave clues and signs that this king would be different. That this was no powerless king. That he could speak even to the waters. And even they would listen to his voice. Oh, there was a lot of enthusiasm among the disciples. This is the king we've been expecting until Calvary. When all the hopes of even his Jewish disciples were shattered. Luke 24, 21, one of them said on the road to Emmaus, we had hope that he was the one to redeem Israel. Well, friends, it was the resurrection that would be the moment that Jesus was declared the Son of God in power. Because up to now, he was the Son of God in weakness, in suffering. We should not conclude that Jesus becomes the Son of God in the resurrection. He's been the Son of God all along. But in the resurrection, the second stage of his kingship now becomes visible to us. He is indeed the king who has not failed, even unto death. Well, friends, as the eternal God, Christ had power before his incarnation. But now, after he had assumed the role of the Davidic king, and in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God said to David about this king that if he sins, and when he sins, he will, God will strike him with a rod of men. The amazing part about this king is that he never sinned and yet took on him our sin, our rebellion, and God struck him in our place. This is why the, the resurrection of this king is so significant because he's declared to be the son of God in power. He has defeated sin and death. Oh, friends, this is no mere human king. He is the victorious king. 
So when Paul says in verse 4, and he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's, he's inviting you and I to consider this Jesus to be your king, your Lord. This human Jesus conquered death and sin. He became incarnate in the line of David to the, fulfill a role of the promised Messiah, of a promised king on the throne of David that no other human king could fulfill. Friends, I wonder if you see the Christ we celebrate during the Christmas season as a sovereign son of God appointed with power. Power over sin and death. And he wants to be powerful and appointed with power over your life. That's why Paul says at the end here that he, was, he received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. If this king is a sovereign king who has been ascended and appointed as a son of God in power, oh, now the, the call of the gospel is a summon to submit our lives, to give our lives, to respond to this king. He is our Lord. And Paul says, we are being commissioned out to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. How encouraging it is in God's providence to remind us of stories like David and Penny Hatcher who have been part of this congregation and the Lord has called them to take this gospel to other nations. Praise be to God. This gospel is calling all of us to be involved with it. He's calling us to submit to it. God is calling us to, to believe this gospel. And God is calling us to spread this gospel. Whether we go or we give money or we pray for or stay in touch with our missionaries and encourage them, we have a part to play in the spreading of the news that this king has been exalted in power. Oh, friends, I wonder, as we celebrate Christmas... And we think about the wonder of the incarnation. What wonders you this Christmas? Paul reminds us at the beginning of this letter of three reasons why we should hold on and celebrate Christmas with, with the wonder of the incarnation. Because the incarnation of God's Son is an important part of the gospel message. It's important because it fulfills the Old Testament gospel promises. It brings God's Son into God's royal line and He prepares the way for victory over death. This is the message we have been entrusted. Let's believe it and let's spread it. Let's pray. Gracious Father, You've been so good to us. You've been generous with us. Father, when there was no human hope, for the, when there was no human means, thinking that this promised Old Testament kingdom that you have revealed, that you have promised, would ever come to pass, Father, in your timing, you have brought it to pass through the birth of Jesus Christ. We thank you for reminding us of the, of the wonder of his birth, for revealing to us your son, Jesus for giving us your Holy Spirit who enables us to see him, to understand him, to believe on him, and to respond to him. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.